Bye, children. How are you out there? Start, I was seeing the first service, you're starting to look normal, as normal as this group gets. You're starting to look normal. That's good, isn't it? You know, it would frustrate me when people were saying, we're never going back to the normal. And I just don't receive that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to go back to better than normal. Some of you are going to be normal. Gary, is this at the same level as it was first? Yeah, we're good. All right. Ready to hurt him? All right. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, I'm going to read to you today. We're only, by the grace of God, going to get through one verse um, today, but it is chock full of everything we need. (laughs) And uh, let's thank God for the word, and then I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5. Father, I just thank you this morning for worship. I thank you this morning we can come together. So good to be together as brothers and sisters in the Lord, Father. I pray as... uh, things get back to normal, that we would, we would not settle for what was, but we would look for a, a, better, a better expression of the church, a, a more aggressive outreach to people who are hurting. And Father, that you would take the word and you would provoke us to godliness this morning. Holy Spirit, open up the truth of this text and burn it deep into our hearts and our minds that we would live it and we would not sin against you, but that we would be a peculiar and a holy people in the midst of a generation that needs to see the light. And I pray that in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in hope, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there is to be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which is not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists of goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Our target verse this morning is verse 3. And last week we, we looked at verse 1 and 2. It says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. And if you didn't hear that message, I encourage you to, to get that online and listen to it, get it in you. But our target this morning is verse 3. Listen very carefully. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is improper among the saints. Let's take a look at that this morning. Now you could tell verse 3 is loaded. Someone say amen. And we are talking about Christian conduct here in Ephesians chapter 5. And as I was reading through the New Testament, just taking notes, this chapter was one that really stuck out to me as someplace we should spend some time. Because Paul gives us 
a real good uh, template here of Christian conduct. And we talked about how should we live. As Christians, we need to be paying attention to how we live. You say, why? Because to the Christian, conduct is very important. You say, why is it so important? Because the world is watching us and they're deciding what they think about Jesus by the way we conduct ourselves. When we say we're Christians, that word means little Christ, that we are imitators of God, as verse 1 said. So the world looks at you and I, Christian, and says, well, these guys follow Jesus. So this, the way they act must be the way Jesus is like. Now, it's quiet, and it should be, because that's pretty sobering, isn't it? And, and there's part of us that goes, please, don't look at me. You know, look at the Bible. Pray. Have your own relationship with God. That's true and that's valid. valid. But Paul said, you know, follow me as I follow Christ. We are to be examples. Our conduct is important. The, whether we like it or not, the world is watching. And they're deciding what they think about Jesus by the way you and I conduct ourselves. Now, Paul lists off some very specific behaviors in chapter 5 here that are inconsistent with Christian conduct. You know, if you're in the military and you're an officer, you have a, a code of conduct, both a, a military code and a moral code that you have to adhere to. And if you violate that code, you can be legally, formally charged in military court with conduct unbecoming of an officer. It's amazing that our enlisted men and our soldiers most of the time are, have more integrity and more character and a stiffer financial, I mean a stiffer military code to follow than even our elected officials do. And they can be held, now think about it, if you can be brought up on charges for conduct unbecoming of an officer or a soldier, how much more as we as Christians should have a moral code and a code of conduct that reflects the written word of God, that reflects what the Bible says we should be in the earth? Come on, come on, second service, you're too quiet. This is going to hurt if you're quiet. Those little amens let the grace fall down. But... Our conduct is something that the world is looking at. People want to see how do Christians behave, and we need to uh, adhere to the moral code. And Paul gives us some very specific things here. They're inconsistent with Christian conduct. And we need to be reminded that as Christians, we should, even though we're surrounded by sin, we should, we should be repulsed by sin. We shouldn't have an affection for it or an affinity towards it. We should be repulsed by sin. Hello? And the Bible teaches us that, you know, uh, to love God is to hate sin, and we need to, you know, be those who honor God and, and, and stay out of the sinful behaviors. And Paul gets really specific here. Now, you've heard it said before that we're to, you know, hate the sin and love the sinner, and there's some truth in that. We don't hate sinners. All right, let me say it. Let me try it on this side. We don't hate sinners. It wasn't as good over there either. We're supposed, oh, well, you know, that, that sin just repulsed me. I can't believe that people, but listen, we're all sinners saved by grace. We don't hate sinners. We love sinners. And so does Jesus. He came to die for sinners. He said to the Pharisees, the, the, the well have no need of a doctor, but the sick. What is he saying? I came to call sinners to repentance. So we love sinners, and we want to share the love of Jesus with them, uh, but we don't want to be sinners ourselves because conduct matters. And so our conduct needs to be above reproach. Now, this blueprint for Christian conduct here continues in uh, Ephesians 5 and verse 3. And basically he says, but immorality 
or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. He's saying these things should be so you know, rare and so far from the church that they shouldn't even be named among you. Now, when you read that scripture, if you're being intellectually honest, you realize that, you know, we got some work to do according to this verse because there's sin in the church and the divorce rate in the church is the same as it is in the world. So we got a little work to do. There are three warnings here that... Paul gives us in verse 3, and they're warnings about conduct. And the first warning is this. The first warning Paul gives us is about immorality. He says, but immorality. And when he uses that word immorality, if you look at it in the Greek, it specifically pertains to sexual immorality. So what Paul is talking about here is that there should be no sexual immorality named among you as is proper among the saints. The fact that God has a huge problem with his children being sexually immoral should come as no surprise to us. Amen? We get that. From the beginning, God's always been consistent. It isn't as God, you know, once he was for it and once he was against it or once the Bible said it's okay or now in the New Testament, you know, it's not as strict as the Old Testament. You know, God in the Old Testament had an anger issue, but he took an anger management class and now he's more chill in the New Testament. Come on. No, God has been pretty consistent cover to cover that sexual immorality is not something that, that the people of God should partake in, so we shouldn't be shocked by it. Now, what constitutes sexual immorality for the Christian? From cover to cover, the Bible is very consistent. All sexual expression outside of the sanctity of marriage is forbidden. It's immorality. God created sex. Hello. And most of you are here because of it. This is a tough crowd this morning. And, you know, what we got to understand is that God as the creator created us with sexual desires, but he gave us marriage as the place to express those things. Why? So that we could be fruitful and multiply. And in the bounds of marriage, sexuality can be expressed, and it's blessed by God, and it's a good thing. But outside of marriage, then we get into the area of immorality. Why? Because when you share yourself with another human being so intimately, and there's no covering there of a, of a commitment or a connection as God has designed, it's out of order, and it produces all kinds of misery. Sexuality out of order produces all kinds of misery. Children born out of wedlock, grown up in fractured homes, boys without fathers, it creates so many problems. There's the diseases that go around, sexually trans. What's that all about? It's about man not adhering to God's system. God's the creator. He created it. He gets to set the bounds for it. The church should get this. But sometimes I don't think we do. Uh, scripture warns us very consistently that we should avoid these expressions of sexuality. Adultery. Adultery is sex that people have that, you know, are married and they go outside their marriage and have sex with somebody else. Fornication. Fornication is people having sex that aren't married. And our society is plagued with this. Homosexuality. People having sex with a member of the same sex. Pedophilia. People having sex with children. Bestiality. People having sex with animals. All this stuff is in scripture and it's been prohibited always. 
do you realize that we have plunged into such the depths of immorality that in our nation and in Europe and some other places, there are people actually laboring to bring about changes in pedophilia laws and saying that pedophilia, sex with children, is a normal behavior. In the United States of America, there's legislation, there are groups right now that are trying to legalize sex with children. And we've said from the beginning, it's a slippery slope. You start making this okay and that okay and the church doesn't stand up and, stand, and, and, and it's a slippery slope till it gets down to the place where anything goes. And God will not be mocked. So all of these things have been for, uh, forbidden, all of these things. And you say, well, why does God, you know, why doesn't God just let us do what we want? Because he understands that these things are ruinous to our souls. When we engage in these behaviors, we create misery. We, we do, God is not up in heaven saying, I don't want you to have any fun. That's my job. Uh, you know, it's my job to curb all the fun and joy. And no, he's saying this will ruin your soul. And that's why he prohibits these things, because they undermine the fabric of society and they bring immorality and, and, and they destroy holiness and they ruin households and marriages and families and all of these things produce death and God wants to give us life. If you study the sexual practices of pagan cultures from the beginning of time, I want you to know, I want you to know something. We haven't invented any new sins. You know, they've been doing this stuff since the beginning of time. And so, you know, when I look at, if you study some of the cultures, the Babylonian paganism, some of these cults, the Ashtoreth and Baal and all of the, all of the worship that Israel had to contend against, you know, was filled with sexual immorality. Uh, even Israel itself, you know, when Israel uh, was in its formative stage there and Moses goes up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, what did the children of Israel do? They made a golden calf and they didn't have a birthday party. They expressed themselves in sexual immorality and orgies and all kinds of things that were vile to God. Where did they learn that? Egypt. Oh, it's quiet this morning. You see, we haven't invented any new sin. And I'm not even sure that we are any worse than any of these cultures. Some of the stuff that I've read and studied is just perverse beyond expression. Yet God's view of sexual immorality has never changed. God has never changed his position on it. He has never said, well, you know, it was bad then, but it's okay now. He doesn't just wink at it. His prohibition of it has not expired. If we give ourselves over to it and we refuse to repent of it, it will ruin our souls. And this is what breaks God's heart. He doesn't want to see our souls ruined. He doesn't want to see our lives ruined. He doesn't want to see our children ruined. He doesn't want to see anyone stumble into hell because they wouldn't repent of sexual immorality. God is not willing that any should perish, but yet man has pushed the envelope throughout the ages and still does. God's position has not changed. Listen to how vividly and forcefully God's word warns us about the outcome of the sexually immoral. See, this is what God, this is what bothers God because he loves us. We sang it this morning. Oh, how he loves us. And he doesn't want any of us to wind up in hell for eternity. He doesn't want any of us to be separated from him. Proverbs 23, 27 says this, For a harlot is a deep pit, and a seductress is a narrow well. She also lies in wait for a victim and increases the unfaithfulness among men. Proverbs 5, 3 through 5. 
For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she's bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to the depths. Her steps lay hold of hell. God is saying the sexually immoral increase the sinfulness of mankind, and the end result of it is a loss of your soul. Proverbs 7, 9 through 27 is what we call, you know, the, 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 the message to the adulterous woman. This could be a, a message to our adulterous generation. Listen to what God's word says in Proverbs 7. In the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness, and behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. So she seizes him and kisses him, and with a brazen face she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings today. I have paid my vows. Therefore I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, with colored linens of Egypt. I have sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. Listen to verse 19. For my husband is not home. He is gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him. At the full moon, he will come home. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one of the, to the fetters of the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird who hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Therefore, my son, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are her slain. Her house is the way to hell. It descends to the chambers of death. Wow. God warns us that adulterous lifestyle. And, and if, you know, this was written, you know, with the, the, the female perspective there, but don't be deceived. This is men and women. It takes two people to do these things. And that it's not gender specific which one's guilty. Hello? You remember when they brought out the woman who was caught in adultery to be stoned? Where was the guy? She committed adultery all by herself? Hello? So these things are a warning, and the end result of them is what? It is the destruction of our souls. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6.18. I found this verse both familiar, but the Holy Spirit showed me something very unique about it. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So God is saying to, to flee from it. it. It's a joint compound sin. We sin against God. We sin against our own bodies. We sin with somebody else. Do you see the mess of sin that it creates here? And the word says to flee from it. Now, if you can find another place in Scripture where the Bible tells us to flee, I'm not aware of too many of them, but here God tells us to flee. What does that mean? Slap it in B for boogie and get on out of there. Hello, flee. He tells us in James not even to flee from the devil, Dan. He says, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and the devil will flee from you. So he says, you know, don't run from the devil, resist him. But he says when it comes to sexual immorality, run. Wow. That's how enticing it is. That's how seductive it is. That's how easy it is if we entertain it to be sucked into it. The Bible says you can't bring fire into your bosom and not be burned. You and I can't 
walk the fence on this. Why? Because it's too seductive. And he says to flee from it. So we need to really look at our hearts, how we view this. Do we view immorality in the sexual sense as something that, ah, you know, everybody does it, and if we do it, God will forgive us, so it's okay. You're playing Russian roulette with your soul. Young people, listen to me. Keep yourself. Save yourself for marriage. Not everybody is doing it. There are some people who are saying, God will reward you. And they, oh, but you know, he loves me. They don't love you. They're going to take something from you you can never get back. And they're going to move on to the next person and break your heart. Trust me. I know I look young. It's oil of Olay. (laughs) But I've been around the block and I've seen a lot of stuff. And I've been married for so long to the gift God gave me to know that it's worth waiting for. I'll tell you something, you know, we mentioned the Babylonian cultures and the pagan cultures and all the orgies and sexual immorality and they had temple prostitutes. I mean, I don't want to get too graphic, but it's really out of control what, you know, those uh, who didn't have a relationship with God used to do. And things haven't changed much. You know, things really haven't changed in the world, but I got to be honest with you, in the last few decades, I've seen that things have actually changed in the church. The church has become more infiltrated. The church has become more tolerant. The church has become more, you know, sexually permissive. And the church needs to take a look at itself. Sexual immorality is so widespread to the point that I look what young people have to face today. And when we were young, we'd say, but everybody's doing it. And that wasn't true. Now it's almost true that it is so pervasive. It is so, you know, throughout the fabric of our culture that it seems like everybody is doing it, that the people who wait and keep themselves for marriage are a smaller and smaller group. Now, I've been in ministry full-time for 26 years, and I've seen things change in just the last two decades where, you know, we used to have people, you know, from outside the church, inside the church come uh, for, you know, premarital counseling, and they wanted to get married, and it used to be that people wouldn't even dare to come and ask the pastor to marry them if they were living together and sexually active. Now the tables have turned to where that's the, that's the rare case that most people are. People come to me, they're living together, and they, have the, they get angry at me if I have the audacity to not want to marry them until they stop that behavior. They're actually belligerent. I'm just going to enjoy the silence. Thank God, you know, the, the couples that we've been marrying lately, uh, you know, they have been honoring God. I, this couple right here just got married. The Brady's wave to everybody. Come on, I'm putting you on the spot. Honoring God, keeping themselves, waiting. God is going to bless your relationship richly, amen, in this generation. And, uh, you know, we need, to, we need to demand that from those who claim to be part of the body of Christ. Oh, it's so comfortable and happy in here today, isn't it? I feel like I'm trying to sell pork chops to a bunch of rabbis. Can't even get a laugh out of that. God's opinion towards immorality hasn't changed. We need to honor him. When we honor him and do what his word says, the blessing that comes to our lives. Listen to me, young people. There's... When you have sexual relations with someone, the Bible says you become one flesh. Do you know there's a physiological uh, thing that is proven in science that a female will carry the DNA of every sexual partner she's had in her body till she dies? 
What is that? Well, what, what, that's kind of weird. What's that all about? The two shall become one flesh. Every time you cross the line, every time you do things that God says not to do, young people, listen, you are bringing that into your future marriage as baggage, and it's going to cost you something. I've done decades of counseling trying to untwist the ball of knots that people make because they won't honor God's word. Just honor God's word. It'll be a blessing in the end, trust me. So... We need revival in our homes. We need revival in our marriages. We need revival in our young people. We need revival in our pulpits. We need preachers who have the guts to say the truth and to, and to shine the spotlight on the issues. God help us. Now, the second warning that comes from Ephesians 3. Now, first service was delighted when I said, because that means I'm moving on to a different topic. But not so much, because we're, we're gonna, <laughs> the second warning of Ephesians 5.3 includes any impurity. And, you know, he moves from the sexual immorality, uh, which is obviously the, some of the sexual sin we talked about. But now he talks about impurity. Things, you know, that would constitute impurity would be things that are, don't involve direct sexual contact, but they're still lewd and immoral. Do you know we live in a lewd, immoral world? Do you ever feel it? I mean, just it's everywhere. You can't leave your house and drive down the street. I mean, you get it's on the radio, it's on billboards, it's it's everywhere. Just the world sexualizes everything. I think I shared one time my wife and I were watching TV, not you know, just regular TV, and they were a gum commercial came on. Gum, chewing gum. And it was so racy, the commercial. I mean, I don't even want to start to describe it. They had people in, you know, in showers and tight clothes. And I'm like, this is a gum commercial? I don't want to chew that gum. And they, they, they use sex and sexuality, and it's, it's lewdness. It's immoral, and it's impure. And God says, you know what, that we should avoid any impurity. Now, the Greek word uh, for impurity uh, is translated uh, in other translations uh, as a driven by lust or a preoccupation with lustful desire. See, it's using lustful things, driven things to, you know, get your attention or to arouse you, uh, you know, for the purpose of selling a product or just for whatever reason it is. But God says to avoid those impurities. Now, we live in this impure world. It's all around us, and the world sexualizes everything. But somehow, some way, we have to allow that not to affect our hearts. There's filth on our TVs. Do you realize what they put on TV? You know, I think about my grandparents' generation. If they saw just regular daytime TV today, they would probably die of a heart attack. Filth in our movies, filth on our phones, filth on our computers, filth in our schools, in our neighborhoods. It, it, there's filth in our churches. Would children go to church and they get molested by clergy? How about our schools? There's been a rash of teachers sleeping with their students like we've never seen before. Do you think all this is an accident? I see the fingerprints of the devil all over it. He's wearing down our society, our world. He's immersing us in the impurities, and we are getting desensitized to it. Now, James 1.27 tells us how to deal with all the filth. 
And it says here in James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. So we've talked about religion many times. Religion has a lot of negative connotations. Why? Because it's man's approach to God and it doesn't necessarily reflect scripture. There are a lot of religions out there in the world today that don't lead to eternal life. So this is one expression of religion that God says is healthy, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. And then he adds this, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You see, it's our job to keep ourselves from becoming spiritually polluted by the impurities of this world. And you know what? It's not an easy thing to do. You know, I don't know... Those of you who know me well know, you know, I, I can be messy. And really, I should never own a white shirt. It's okay to laugh. In fact, probably if you saw the t-shirt I have on this morning, chicken wings and bullet holes, and I'll just leave my shirt on. But you know, one time my wife bought me a white shirt, and I, the first time I wore it was to a barbecue. With barbecue sauce. I think when I got home, I had barbecue sauce, relish, marks, mustard stain, done. It's a rag. Send it to the garage. It's hard to keep something that's white clean. You know, we've got to look at it as when we come to Jesus and we're born again and he forgives us of our sins, that he's washed us white as snow. And we're clean and we're pure in his sight by the blood of Jesus. And then the world wants to dirty up that holiness. And I want you to get this picture in your mind that, you know, your salvation is that white t-shirt. Now, is it all stained and spotted and, and filthy? Is it covered with all kinds of marks and dirt? Listen, we have to keep ourselves pure. And yes, it's by the blood of Jesus, absolutely, but we have a part to play in it. We can't just yield ourselves over to the impurities of this world and, and not be unstained. And God wants us to stay pure. You say, well, pastor, tell us, you know, give us 15 steps to maintaining purity. No, I'm not going to do it. Here's why. You and I need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling ourselves. Because what God asked me to do might be different from what God asked you to do. Maybe there's things that you can do that I can't do. As, as a young man, Kelly was talking today that, you know, we've been in this church. She was leading worship since 13. I've been here since 14. God has always had me on a very short leash. And God has had me on the other people my age could do things that I couldn't do. Listen, if God's got you on a short lease and you feel the Holy Spirit tugging, don't fight against it. Submit to it. He's trying to keep you pure. I didn't do certain things my peers did. I didn't, the, the people in school, I didn't run. I didn't go to the parties. I didn't, I, I, I kept myself from those things. And I'm so glad I did now because some of those people grew up and they know how I maintain myself and what I wouldn't do and what, and now they're sitting in my church and I got to look at them every week. Could you imagine? Ugh. Oh, you know what he did when he was a teenager? Oh, to keep ourselves unstained, unspotted by the world. We need to work that out with the Lord. We need to submit ourselves to the tug of the Holy Spirit. We need to honor God's word and avoid immorality and impurity. Otherwise, we're going to wind up filthy again. And Paul says it shouldn't even be named among you, yet we see it throughout our culture and in our churches. 
So avoid sexual immorality, avoid impurity. It might seem like a tall order, but with the Holy Spirit and the right heart, you can do it. The third warning that comes out of this text is a warning and a prohibition against greed. Now, it's kind of interesting that God puts greed in with these other two things, because we just covered two heavy hitters. Can, can everyone agree? And then he throws greed in there. And you might think, well, greed, that's not real. You know, everybody, you know, likes to have their stuff. And, you know, and then, no, greed is a big issue. And, it, and it's in this list for a reason. It's one of these three first warnings we look at here. Now he says, or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. The word translated greed in, in the New American Standard Bible we're using here is translated covetousness in the King James Version. And it's the Greek word pleonexia, and it means to practice greed. It is a selfishness and, listen, an excessive desire for more than is needed motivated by blind ambition. So it's this desire to have more than I need, and that's what greed is. Now, before I even jump into, you know, talking about greed a little bit, do you know the only way to conquer greed? That's it. Jill said it. Giving, to be a giver, to be generous. The only way to conquer greed, the only way to prove it is to become a giver, to be a generous person. Now, you know when you're around a greedy person, don't you? I just had someone come to me and say, you know, the, he was laughing about, I was talking about greed and cheapness. He went over somebody's house and they were cheap. They were at a barbecue. They were hardly passing out food. You know, one tomato for you, one pickle. How many pickles did you have? Is that your second burger? That's, that's not your burger. Hand that back in. You know, when you're around a greedy person, it's, it's not fun. You ever been around a cheap person? Cheap people. Ew, gross. Greedy. Selfish. You know, it's not becoming of a saint to be greedy and selfish. Why? God wasn't selfish with us. God doesn't do the bare minimum for us. Boy, he's really good to us, isn't he? Uh, he doesn't, he's not a cheapo when he hands out the blessings. Well, here's enough joy for you. You want peace? You already had joy. Now you want peace? Here. All right, here's, here's a little peace for you. Like he's peeling it off a roll of ones. You know, he's cheap. Laugh a little, it's good for you, right? That's not God, but yet there's people like that. Greed should not be named among us. To want and desire to have excess more than we need, uh, to be motivated to, to have things. Now, this is a violation of the 10th commandment not to covet. Covetousness says, you know, I want more than I need. And not only that, I want what you have. I want your house. I want your car. I want your wife. I want your job. It's, it's this desire. It's greed. I got a whole bunch of stuff, but I want more stuff. I got good stuff, but I want better stuff. How many times do we replace things that work perfectly fine with the better new model? Do you know what I found out? They haven't made things better in a long time. They, they, they messed up the gas can, Pastor Mike. You can't even get it. Now the gas can has all these stupid contraptions on it. You got to pour and vapors in. It doesn't work. I went out and found some military gas cans and bought them. Amen. It's nuts. Oh, this is better. You need this. You need the new. How much more do you want your phone to do? Do you want it to like, you know, you, you could fly with it or something. It, it beams you to your next appointment. What? Well, I need this one. I can do that. 
Honestly, I could still survive with my flip phone. I probably wish I could get it back. <laughs> Greed. I want more than I need. And there are three ways, you know, people who are greedy are, are really just, you know, greed is a cancer. It consumes the soul. And when a, a person is consumed by greed, it's really ugly the way they'll behave. I want to tell you a story about a woman. She owned a string of hotels. She owned the Empire State Building. She owned the Empire State Building. You know the one where King Kong climbed up, that one? She was a billionaire, a multi-billionaire. Yet in 1989, Leona Helmsley was convicted of 33 counts of tax evasion for which she faced a possible 100 years in federal prison. Multi-billionaire, but yet wanted to get every nickel and dime. According to Time magazine, she was a penny-pinching tyrant who tried to stiff just about everyone she ever worked with. No amount of money was too small for her to fight over. In fact, after the sudden death of her only son at age 40, she sued and won the lion's share of his estate, $149,000, leaving his four children, her grandchildren, with $430 each and the widow with just over two grand. Do you see? Greed will consume you, and the expression of it is ugly. It's a cancer that eats the soul, and giving is the only proof that we've conquered it. Here are three expressions of greed in our world, and I'll close with this. How, you know, uh, greed ranges in the obvious to the subtle. Sometimes, you know, it's obvious that's greed, but there's subtle expressions of greed in our culture that we miss, that we might partake in, and I hope this helps you today. The, the first one is this. The obvious expression of greed is this, greed for monetary and material excess. If you've ever met a person who loved money and you saw what they would do to get money, it's a pretty ugly thing. But I want to ask you something. How much stuff do we really need? You know the old expression, you can't take it with you? When they bury you, they're not going to bury you with all your stuff. Right? People are going to fight over it and take it. Hello? When you die and go to heaven, you're not going to go up there, you know, with, with two U-Hauls behind you. Hey, Jesus, I came with all my stuff. You can't take it with you. And we're sojourners here just passing through. So the obvious thing is that I want more money than I need. I want mature, more material goods than I need. I want more, 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 more. I'm getting to the place in life where I'm like, I've got enough stuff. I'm starting to get rid of it. I don't need any more. I don't have the time and the energy to even maintenance all this stuff I have. I have a garage that I can't walk through and an attic that just needs, you know, there's no fix in it. It needs an airstrike. <laughs> How much stuff do we need? I've seen, I remember when my grandfather passed away, my mom's dad, we, we put all the stuff he had in just a few little boxes. Here's a guy who came through the World War II generation, you know, the greatest generation. He always seemed to have the stuff he needed, but he didn't have a lot of stuff. And we looked at it all oh, when he, you know, he had his tools and stuff. Some of his tools I still use today, his hand tools and stuff. But, you know, it was a simpler generation. They weren't materialistic and greedy. I remember how my grandparents lived, very simple. Now, we, we've gotten too complicated, too greedy. We need too much stuff. 
God change our hearts. That's the obvious expression of greed. How about a, a little less obvious expression? How about the greed for obtaining power and pleasure and comfort? This is in our, in our world. People, there are people who just, you know, have this, they, wanna, they want power, they want control, they want to control other people's lives. They have a greed for it. You know, I get really frustrated in our, in our country where people refer to the people in Washington who represent us as our leaders. Church, they're not our leaders. They're our elected representatives. This is not a democracy. It's a republic. We, we have been so ill-educated in our system, and that's on purpose. We don't know the Constitution. We don't understand our governmental system. People are running around saying it's a democracy. It's a, a constitutional republic. And some of you are looking at me like you don't even know what I'm talking about. And our freedoms are getting ripped out right from under us. And you say, well, why should we care about that? Listen to me. The first thing to go when they take away the Constitution is freedom from the pulpit. You study it everywhere, Russia, Nazi Germany, any other place, they took, they took the freedom away. So you and I should care. People have a greed for power, and you see them, they get into office, and they don't act like a, a representative anymore. They act like tyrants. We've had tyrants that have shut down our states. They've destroyed businesses. They've destroyed families. As Pastor Frank said, they, they try to muzzle us and shut up the church and shut down the church. We just had a church in California sue the governor because he told them, you can't go to church, you can't sing in church, you can't have church. And they said, well, listen, buddy, we're having church. Ball's in your court. Court sided with the church. God help us the world we live in if we're apathetic. <laughs> our, our forefathers would have been shooting by now. And some of us are just out in the left field. People have this greed for power. They want to replace the world's greatest economy with Marxism that never, ever has succeeded. And they're burning our cities down. People have a greed for pleasure and comfort. That's one that we don't think of often. Do you know the mantra of the Western civilization is make everything easier? Make it easier, easier, more comfort, more ease, more pleasure. Work hard, save up all your money, squirrel it away so you can retire and do nothing. Ah, ease. People have a greed for that. You know, we are kingdom people. I don't know about you, but I don't see any place in the scripture where it says we can quit working for the kingdom and doing the things of God and just dig our toes in the sand and quit. No, I'm probably going to preach till I die. Hopefully not while I'm doing it. But listen to me. We never graduate from our call. Oh, let's just kick back with our toes in the sand and do nothing for Jesus. Oh, man. pleasure and comfort. People are greedy for it. Make it easier and easier and easier. Sometimes easier is not the best way. Sometimes it's hard work. Sometimes it's commitment. Sometimes it's enduring hardship as a good soldier, like Paul said, Amen. to run our race and finish the course. Here's the least obvious expression of greed. People in our culture have a greed for man's attention, affirmation, and accolades. We live in such a narcissistic generation. People want the attention of others. How many friends you got? How many followers you got? How many likes did you get? Yeah. Oh, you posted your dinner online, you had a hot dog. How many likes you get for your hot dog? <laughs> hot dog. And people live and die by that. And they, they, they calculate their self-worth by that. Well, only five people like my hot dog. Huh? You know, I'm depressed. I, 
I need some antidepressants. The attention and affirmation and accolades of others. And people need attention. Why? Because they're insecure and they have no purpose. And they're not kingdom people. And they're even in the church. And they don't get their affirmation from God. So they want it from the world. And there's a greed for that. I want it. I want it. I want more exposure. I want more likes. I want more friends. I want to be more popular. It's greed. You know, you post... A picture online, you know, and, and I, I always, I said the first service, you know, people just are lying to you online. Yeah. You know, you post a picture and everybody's, oh, you look so good, you're so skinny, you look like 10 pounds of potatoes in a five-pound bag, and they're telling you you look good. <laughs> and I'm looking at the picture, and I'm looking at, <laughs> they're lying to you. You need to spit out what's in your mouth and get on the treadmill. I don't want people to lie to me. Oh, you look so slim. You got a six-pack under there? No. I, I got the family pack. But what, what do they do? They lie to each other. Oh, honey, you look so good. Lying devil. I'll just let that marinate a minute. But it's greed. We want attention. We're narcissistic. We base our self-worth on it. Our social status. Listen to me. Doesn't matter how many friends you got, how many likes you get, who likes your hot dog. It matters what God thinks about you. Are you fulfilling the call of God on your life? If your heart stopped beating right now, could he say, well done, good and faithful servant? Or will he say, hey, I like that last post you had. We need some change in our hearts. We need to push greed far from us. We should be the most generous people ever. God is not greedy with us. He's not selfish with us. He's not stingy with us. He doesn't just, you know, give us a little dabble, do you? He lavishes his blessings upon us. That's why some of us have everything we could ever need and more than we could ever need. And what we need to do is worry about our brothers and sisters who don't have a code, who don't have a, uh, you know, a car. We need to think about others and start giving it away. I've had the fortune, you know, I've had the, the, the pleasure to know some people that were so generous that they taught me what it meant to be generous. That, you know, just every time you're with them, they're giving you stuff to the point where I'm like trying to pay them for it. And they're like, nah, just take it. That's the way we should be. Look, all the selfish people are going, you're getting like Smeagol, my precious. Stop that. You can't take it with you. Bless somebody else. God wants us to avoid sexual immorality. Why? Because he doesn't want us to have fun? No, because it will ruin our souls. God wants us to keep on staying from the world. Why? Because he's given us this great gift of salvation and he doesn't want us to dirty it up. He wants us to stay holy and connected to him and just stay away from the things of the world that are filthy. God wants us to push greed far from us and be generous people, givers, amen? People should be blessed around you. Whatever you're, whenever they're around you, you should be giving things out. Sincere compliments, sincere encouragement, hello? Those things are priceless. Do you realize we live in a world that doesn't encourage? People are so selfish that, well, if I encourage you, it, it, you know, it'll make me look smaller. I'm just going to puff myself up. Do you realize how rare encouragers are? Do you realize how awesome it would be to 
be an encourager and just hand that out sincerely. Don't lie. God, help us to walk worthy of our calling, to conduct ourselves in a way that make people want to know Jesus instead of saying, I don't want anything to do with that. Help us to be light in the darkness because there's a lot of hurting, broken people out there who've been abandoned, who've been abused, who've been used and chewed up and spit out by the world, and they're looking at the church, they're looking at Christians, and they're looking at the way we conduct ourselves to see what they think about Jesus, and Jesus, you're their only hope, so help us to reflect the truth of who you are in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Give them a hand clap of praise. Bless you, Lord.